In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father Brendan Kilcoyne joining you again for the Brendan option. If you enjoy this podcast, you might consider clicking subscribe. You might also consider visiting our website, immaculataproductions.org. And if you really are feeling absolutely madly generous, you might consider becoming a supporter in a tangible sense on Patreon. So there are a few things you might give a thought to, because as you can imagine, none of these things run on thin air. I'd like to begin with a psalm, Psalm 42 or 43, depending on which numeration you use. Because what I want to talk about in this podcast is, is an absolutely vexed question. It's in a way so hackneyed and yet so little that's really fresh as ever said about it. I'm going to talk about prayer. Like the deer that yearns for running streams, so my soul is yearning for you, my God. My soul is thirsting for God, the living God. When can I enter and appear before the face of God? My tears have become my bread by day, by night, as they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things will I remember as I pour out my soul, for I will go into the place of your wondrous tent all the way to the house of God. Amid cries of gladness and thanksgiving, the throng-keeping joyful festival. Why are you cast down, my soul? Why groan within me? Hope in God. I will praise him yet again, my saving presence and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and Mount Hermon from the hill of Mizar. Deep is calling on deep in the roar of your torrents. Your billows and all your waves swept over me. By day the Lord decrees his merciful love. By night his song is with me. Prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning, oppressed by the foe, with a deadly wound in my bones? My enemies revile me, saying to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, my soul? Why groan within me? Hope in God. I will praise him yet again, my saving presence and my God. I just want to make the point that your problems with prayer aren't new. This is one of the Psalms and today is the feast, by the way, of Pope St. Pius X. Great Pope, great saint. Everyone thinks of John the Twenty-Third, and, and rightly so, as, as the, the Irish really warmed to him because he was, you know, the peasant pope. He was short and pudgy and he was a countryman and he was full of shrewdness and joy and everything. And we often forget the quieter, let's say, shyer personality of Giuseppe Sarto, Pius X, a man from probably an even poorer background rose to become Pope, although he didn't see it as rising. He truly saw himself as the servant of the servants of God. He's a tremendously humble man and a great fighter for the faith. In the officer readings today, Pope St. Pius X, actually, he's talking about the Psalms as being just incomparable for prayer. And that's my personal experience. So I'd just like to say that I agree with Pope St. Pius X. I'm, I'm, I'm sure he really needed me to do that. That's my personal experience. You cannot beat the Psalms. Catholicissimo, the most Catholic, Pius X. And he quotes Athanasius, the great Athanasius, saying that the Psalms are so great because they're a mirror to the soul. You see yourself in the Psalms. Now you listen again to that first Psalm. 
I mean, that first psalm is, it just sum, it sums it up so much. The, the guy is wore out. He's, he's doing his best. He's trying and trying. He keeps knocking on the door. Nobody ever comes out. God never seems to quench his thirst. I think the novelist John Updike said that the religions reminded him of ads for Coca-Cola. They stimulate thirst without ever satisfying it. And it's an accusation that can often be thrown at religion. And there, thousands of years ago, is this poor man suffering because God, God has his own ways of doing things. And he doesn't engage in the conversation in quite the same way that we expect. By day the Lord decrees his merciful love, by night his song is with me. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning, oppressed by the foe with a deadly wound in my bones? I love that line. With a deadly wound in my bones. It reminds me of Yeats' use of the same phrase in his poetry, the marrow bones. I think it's a phrase that he heard from the servants in his uncle's house. To get down on your marrow bones and scrub the floor. To feel it in your bones, as we say, colloquially. The Psalms are unbeatable for prayer. Listen to me, one of the greatest mystics in the history of the church is Teresa of Avila. Again, one of my favourite saints, along with Thomas Aquinas. She was short, pudgy nun, cheerful and happy and full of joy. She had a very tough life. She was a great friend to God, but God, you know, as Teresa of Avila is supposed to have said once when she was in an accident thrown out of her carriage into a river in a storm. It's no wonder you have so few friends with the way you treat the ones you have. God is not a predictable friend and sometimes he can seem a damn bad friend. Nothing you're going through is unknown to God, but very little you're going through is unknown to your fellow man. Now that's, that's absolutely crucial because it does diminish the loneliness even if it doesn't solve the problem. Only God can solve that problem. All right? Only God can solve that problem. But at least you're not alone in it. And you have that wonderful line in it. And I think the key is in the psalm. Deep is calling on deep in the roar of your torrents. Your billows and all your waves swept over me. Abyssus, abyssum invocat. The abyss calls on the abyss in the roar of the cataract. Another translation. It's a magnificent two lines. And that's the key. You are talking to God at a level you don't fully understand. Because if you consider it, even among human beings, communication happens at many different levels. And the most powerful is visual. I mean, you just consider the extent to which you map and rake and harrow the face of somebody who's talking to you, looking for clues. Human beings know that people can mask their thoughts and how do you know? So we're constantly making a study of each other. That's very, very primitive. It's very deep. You are talking to God, you just don't know it. So could we all just calm down and not become atheists overnight just because our prayer isn't going well? Teresa of Avila had 20 years of not being able to pray without a book. 20 years. One of the greatest mystics in the history of the church. A doctor of the church. And you're ashamed, oh, I shouldn't be having to do this, to take up, take up the Psalms, to take up a New Testament. Get away out of that, you lazy bones. Aren't you very posh? Aren't you fierce grand? You're like my dog. She wants to be carried everywhere. She just couldn't be bothered to get out of the car and she couldn't be bothered to get back into it. It's easier to be carried. You're made for this. You're a prayer machine. 
you're made to know, love and serve God in this life. Wasn't that what the old catechism used to say? To know, love and serve God in this life and be with him forever in the next. The point of your whole life is an eternity with God. If it goes wrong, it'll be an eternity without God. And we don't want that. Our whole point in this is to get you to God. Go to the Psalms. Don't write yourself off because you don't have mystical experiences immediately. Listen to me. Teresa again said she never really trusted mystical experiences too quickly. In fact, she was very much inclined to be dubious of them. She said often she heard God speaking in her mind, so to speak. And she said mostly it was her imagination. And she called the imagination the nutcase. And then sometimes it was the devil who was evil. And then she said, yeah, sometimes it was God. Sometimes it was God, but in a minority of cases. I'm going to tell you here that you're barking down the wrong tree if you're looking for kicks in your prayer life. If you want kicks, go bungee jumping, okay? You go into prayer to meet God. You go into prayer as a broken human being on the wrong side of the grave because the wrong side of the grave, you know that saying? Every day above ground is a good day. I know where that's coming from, okay? I accept that. But that is a godless saying. Every day in heaven is a good day. If we really understood the implications of our faith, like the children of Fatima, we would just want to die. Not because we want to die, but because we want to be with God and Our Lady and the saints and all our friends and our relatives and everyone we've lost and a whole load of new friends. That's what you're made for. That's what you're going to. Listen to me. If you go to prayer without keeping that in mind, if your prayer isn't, okay, you're ready for this because I'm going to I'm going to use a big word. I love using big words because they make me feel so intellectually tough. You need to get eschatological on this. Okay? To eschaton in Greek. Do you hear this stuff I'm laying on you? I'm not even charging you for this. This is some serious, heavy, mystical, classical stuff I'm laying on you here. To eschaton. The last thing. Anyology is a study of, from the Greek logos, word. Anyology is a study, biology, psychology and so on. Eschatology is the study of the last things. Death. Judgment. Heaven or hell. Forgive me for enjoying this. Okay. I'm a spiritual dwarf. I get my kicks out of frightening everyone else with this stuff. Death. Judgment, heaven or hell. I heard a parishioner comment on a priest once. He never stops preaching about hell. He mentioned heaven the odd time, but he, he's not into it. Listen, you need to be into heaven. We're about heaven. We're going home. We're an Easter people. The path to Easter is through Golgotha. But we don't plan on staying there. We're in a camper. We're going straight through and we're going to heaven. We're going to be with God. And that's how you go into prayer. And you're saying, oh, jeepers, I can't concentrate. I go into the church and I fall asleep. Why wouldn't you have a little nap? You're in God's house. You belong there. Have a little snooze there for yourself. You're fine. Very Catholic. Just don't fall asleep during my sermon. I take that very personally. Okay, not that I haven't seen people do it. Shortly after I was ordained, I was in a parish in Connemara and an old man up in the gallery fell asleep. And he obviously had a terrific snore. And he snored his way right through the... The whole church was cracking up. He snored his way right through the sermon. He was mortified when he found out after. But fair enough, even though I was a young priest and not ordained, I was up for it. I kept going. I soldiered on through the sermon. 
Listen, what if you have a little snooze? Is the world going to fall in? God going to send you to hell for that? Because you maybe you're tired. You need a little sleep for yourself. You're in God's house. You're a citizen of heaven. You're in the house of your father. Take it handy. You know, if you fall asleep, you fall asleep. What's the big deal? You wake up and you go back praying again. God loves you. Don't worry if you get distracted. Distraction is a problem in prayer, but you're not going to improve it by getting upset. You're not going to improve it by giving up. Generally, it's a very poor way to improve your health if you feel sick by just jumping off a cliff. It'll certainly stop the sick feeling. It'll stop everything else as well. So why give up just because your prayer isn't going well? Let the distraction work itself out and you you ease your way back. Don't, don't fight the distraction head on. It'll just get worse. That's basic co- psychology and common sense. Go for it at a slant, diagonally. Don't take it on head on. You'll lose. The imagination is so much more powerful than the will. Please, please, please. Box clever. So when you're praying, you, you feel God isn't listening to you. God's listening to you. God's very smart. He can listen to a whole lot of stuff at the same time and say nothing. So you get distracted. You fall asleep, so you fall asleep. You get bored, fine, you're bored in the church. You stay in the church. You give up everything because you get bored, you'll end up starving because you won't even do a day's work. Come off it. A lot of work is boring. I don't think that you can possibly develop a good prayer life unless you approach it on that belt and braces basic model. Now I'm talking about praying in church. Why? Because we reserve in Catholic churches the Blessed Sacrament and praying before the Blessed Sacrament is a very, very powerful and beautiful form of prayer and is highly recommended by any number of saints and probably archangels and and, and a whole crowd of very impressive beings. Okay, So pray before the Blessed Sacrament as much as you can. But remember what our Lord said to us, the Lord's Prayer. Go into your room, shut the door, pray. Yeah, absolutely, you don't have to be in church to pray. But again, you know, you go into your room, you shut the door to pray. In a sense, in a sense, you have created a sacred space around you. In a sense, God is present. And again, you're, you're in his presence. You're in the presence of somebody who absolutely loves you. So there's nothing here that can't be solved. How real are we socially? How real are we socially? An Irish comedian used to end all his performances with the joking phrase, but joking in earnest, the joking phrase, keep it real. Wasn't that Dara O'Brien? Dara O'Brien, was it? Keep it real. It's a great line. Keep it real. How real are we? How real are we with each other? Do you remember I said before how a part of the art of living, and it's necessary, is the management of the truth, because you can use the truth to destroy somebody. You can use the truth as a chainsaw. You can, you know, use the truth as something beautiful and life-giving. So we're tactful, we're diplomatic. It's not the same as lying. It can shade into lying. I admit that, but you can't abandon something good just because it can go bad. But with all this diplomacy and all this tact and with how careful we have to be with each other and with just the, you know, the requirements of good manners and all the rest of it. And remember that bad manners create terrific stress socially. Bad manners are very bad for people. That's probably why they're called bad manners. They stress people out. They upset people. Good manners are very, they're very, very calming. Very good for what's now called well-being. And we're talking here about well-being. It's just ultimate well-being. It's profoundly spiritual well-being. 
uh, you know, the Japanese say that everyone wears masks and most people have an array of masks. And, you know, you have the mask for work and you have the mask for parties, you have the mask for certain friends, mask for other friends, this, that and the other. You go home, you have another mask, you have a mask in front of your kids. Then, And then even in front of your wife or husband, you have a mask. And then on your own, only on your own, do you take off the last mask. I don't know about that, but I, I would say there's a lot of sense in it. You see, people are totally different if they know that they're being listened to by more than the person they're talking to. And that's true. I mean, I used to be tearing what hair I have left out when I was teaching. And you were training, occasionally we'd have a class mass, you'd be training lads to read. And a guy would go up who was a real wit and a complete hangman. And he'd read the reading like a, like a puppet, like a wooden puppet, like a Pinocchio. It was just dire. If he went up and spoke with the idiomatic richness of his normal language, well, he might have tempered a bit. He'd be fascinating. He would breathe life into the scriptural passage. And actors will tell you, speakers, orators will tell you, that one of the greatest difficulties is to, as Eliot says, arrive where you started and know the place for the first time. It's to stand up and with the greatest artistry and all your experience, speak like a normal person, as if you were standing with one hand in your pocket chatting to a friend. But that takes phenomenal skill. Because all your instinct is to put on yet another mask, maybe two or three. Because you're so vulnerable there in front of everyone. Qualitative researchers would say, and this, this is people who have put ages of time into, into taped interviews. At the end of the day, all you can be absolutely certain of is that what you have is an accurate record of what the interviewee wanted you to hear. <laughs> of the image they wish to project. Because some people are very good at this stuff. You take that and you bring that to prayer. There's a whole fascinating thing there about the confessional, isn't there? A friend of mine who's a very hard-working farmer, a neighbour of mine, used to joke about some of his neighbours. He said all they had to do was look out in the morning and see the faintest suggestion of rain coming in over Clare Island and they went back to bed. <laughs> oh, we'll do nothing today. <laughs> Terrible weather <laughs> coming. You'll give up prayer if you get half a chance. You'll use any excuse. Because this is a terrifying conversation. Because you're dealing with God and there is no point in wearing masks in front of God. So there you are in your spiritual and social psychological makeup. You're there with the image you want to project. And you're going to try that crap on God. Good luck with that. Because he can see straight through it. And we know he can see straight through it. Prayer is no joke. So I can see easily why not alone would you be distracted, but you'd be delighted to be distracted. I, I always find if I'm doing an essay for a course I'm doing, I will find a thousand things to do around the house that I didn't do for ages. And I'll do them rather than do what I don't want to do. I will find any number of things I would prefer to do than do the essay. You're there and believe you me, a part of you wants to go down that side road. You want to be distracted. You want to fall asleep. You want to do anything because it is, to quote, it is a terrible thing to come face to face with the living God. This is a terrible place, that place on which you meet him. You remember Moses in the burning bush? You remember what God said to Moses? Take off your shoes for the place where you are standing is holy. And here the same God is speaking to you. I am who am. 
The same God is speaking to you. In that novel by Georges Bernanos, The Diary of a Country Priest, the old parish priest says to the young priest, you know why they hate you? It's because your simplicity burns them. Holiness is nothing less than, to paraphrase Newman, the shining of God through a window that has been cleaned. Holiness is where we see God through somebody and it burns us. And so we'd prefer to do anything rather than genuinely pray. Now, I said there's no problem with falling asleep. There's no problem, but just know what's happening. I said there's no problem with being distracted. No problem. Just know what's happening. I'm not abusing you for faults I have myself or for your human frailty. I'm just saying you're human. To be human also is to be wise, brave and holy. And you're called to all of those things. But (laughs) don't blame you for wanting to back out. We're natural managers. We're rational animals and we impose our rationality on the world around us. We're creative, like the Father who created us. We're creators. And we think that we can go in in front of God and do a God on God. That we can manage him with our masks and our posturing and our pretense. You're not going to manage him. That's not going to happen. He loves you, but you're not going to manage him. God manage you. And so an absolute basic skill in prayer is an absolute basic skill in all Catholic spirituality and theology. Keep it real. We believe in objective reality. You are in the presence of the source of all reality. This is a talk like no other. It is a conversation like no other. And if you don't know how to talk to God, don't worry about it, because nobody else does either. It is the most genuine conversation that you will ever have. And so how should you begin your prayer? Well, I suggest you begin your prayer by shrugging your shoulders as they do in the Mafia films and say, this is what it is. (laughs) You know who I am and you know what I am. You know all of this. There is no point in going back all over it again because you know it all. For what it's worth, I'm sorry. And you know I'll betray you again. So you know, you know what you're dealing with. And then you just say absolutely from your heart. I think the, the, the Jesus prayer of the, of the Eastern Orthodox is as good a summary of it as any. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I was taught that prayer by a priest who taught us in St. Charlotte's College back, I think, about 1980. And I've said it all my life. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. There are several, a few versions of it. Just keep saying it, just keep saying it, keep saying it, keep saying it. Keep saying his name. Keep saying the holy name, which the world of evil hates. That burns them. Keep saying his name. Jesus, Son of David, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Keep this simple. Look, act if you want. If you can't stop acting, fine. Sure, if nothing else, it'll give him a good laugh. I mean, this is a lifetime of, you know, it takes, it takes a lifetime to get, get anyway good at this. And then you die and you get the whole thing free anyway. All you're asked to do is just keep making a fool of yourself in front of him. Just keep at it. Just keep, keep trying, keep at it. It's one of the few areas on which we agreed with the Vikings 
You know, the Vikings believed that only those who fell in battle could go to Valhalla. Valhalla wasn't simply heaven as we understand it, but you had to fall in battle. Uh, at the risk of scandalising some devout believers, we believe something not dissimilar. You're not asked to get it perfect because you're not perfect and you can't get it perfect. And actually, if you, if you keep going on saying, I have to get it perfect, you'll end up going to hell. Because that's pride. And it's a great temptation of evil. So quit, stop that. Now, you're not going to get this perfect. God will finish it and must finish it. Grace perfects nature. But don't say there's nothing I can do because that's not true either. You're brilliant and gifted. You're a son of da or daughter of God. You can lift a little finger. You can at least manage to say, pick me up. Can you manage that? Well, maybe if you could just say, pick. I mean, we can narrow this down. If you're that lazy, we can narrow this down like, like my dog, Lucy. You can just look up at God with helpless brown eyes and wait to be picked up and put in the car. Fine. But at least that much you must do. And you must do it freely. And you must do it intentionally. You must at least say, and maybe the real genius of Christianity and prayer lies in this. You must at least say, but this is a huge thing to say. Lord Jesus Christ, so the living God have mercy on me, a sinner. And do this because I can't. But that's crucial. That in itself is a great work that you have just done. You've overcome your pride. You have realised reality in your desperation. You have read the signs of the times. You, you have listened to the Spirit. That's not nothing. To beg from God is necessary. It's no dishonour. But you must beg. I mean, if you don't even ask. I know he knows. He knows what you need. But you need to ask. Do, do you see? You need to ask. It, it, he doesn't need you to ask. You need to ask. Because we obstruct nature with our masks and our play acting and our, our smarty pants management of, of situations and relationships and our playing games. We obstruct grace. We become cute and, and schlevings, spiritual schlevings, always on the make, always with an agenda. Well, there is no point to that here because he knows your old game and you're not even good at it. Believe me, he's better at it, so don't bother. If you have to, fine. Oh, Lord, just keep going. If you have to, fine. It's better than nothing. But it's better if you could just stop acting apart and be yourself. The self that he absolutely loves and for whom he has died. Tom Wolfe, the American novelist who died there lately, you may have come across his book, Bonfire of the Vanities. There was a very indifferent film made of it with Bruce Willis, a very disappointing film. Strange, Bruce Willis very strangely cast, in, but the, the, the novel is well worth reading. It's a tremendous uh, Mickey take, if you like, on wealthy, well, jeepers on everything, really, on, on New York society in the 1980s. Wall Street, the, the coloured braces, uh, the ruthlessness, the making of fortunes, the... The Ayn Rand reading Masters of the Universe, as Wolf with exquisite irony keeps calling them, the Masters of the Universe, the, the hugely wealthy stockbrokers and hedge fund managers. I mean, our economy wouldn't work, but for these gifted and brilliant people. But what Wolf is poking fun at is the notion that anyone could have, that their transitory power is somehow makes them a master of the universe. 
And he has this sort of ghastly image. It's almost like something out of an Edgar Allan Poe short story or something. This ghastly image from a New York society party of the hostess who's who's made up to look much younger than she is. She's actually quite close to elderly. and She's made herself up like a very young woman. And, and the effect really is, is, well, it's quite startling. And she, she has this gift at conspiratorially drawing you into her conversation. She's a brilliant hostess, society hostess, and she can make you feel like you're the only person in the room. And then she'll do that every two minutes with somebody else. And the whole party is a whole party full of people who've come there to see other people whom they're hoping will be there. And looking over the shoulder of the person they're talking to to see who else is there so they can talk to somebody else that's important. And he describes the way in which the hostess laughs. It's kind of a cack, 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 like a machine gun. Oh, it's absolutely surreal. He describes all the sounds of the, of the fake laughter and the carefully poised witticisms and all the rest of it and how fake the whole thing is. Now, if that's the way you want to run your prayer life, like a carefully managed society dinner party, that's fine. You do that to God if you want to make a complete eejit to yourself. Absolutely. Go ahead. Knock yourself out. It won't be the first time he's seen it. It won't be the last. And it's prayer of a kind. Oh no, in fairness, it is prayer of a kind. Making a complete amadon of yourself in front of God is still prayer of a kind. I do think it could be done a little bit better. I think you, you can easily, with God's help, do it better. But if that's where you're stuck, that's fine. If you want to make it a bit better, start taking off the masks and start being yourself. Keep it real and start being yourself. As Eliot says in Four Quartets, the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. That great difficulty in just having the courage to face yourself, to be yourself and to be in the presence of the all-powerful God who knows you and loves you. That takes courage. I remember the best view I ever had of prayer was, I may have talked about this before, when I was a young fellow. I saw the old men praying in church and I saw the last of a distinctively male piety in the Catholic Church because now we have a feminised church. I'm not saying that because I'm misogynist, but I'm not saying that because I want the church run like some sort of a men's club. I'm not saying any of that stuff or for any of those reasons. Femininity is an extremely beautiful thing. So is masculinity and we need both. They complement each other. I saw the end of a male piety. If you want to see it now, I don't know, you'll probably see it uh, in Islam. I don't know where else you'd see it. Maybe a few of the, the, the smaller, maybe a few of the smaller, the, I don't know, the Protestant, small Protestant groups. I don't know. I don't know. But I saw it. I saw it in, saw it in the old men with their gnarled hands. I saw it in the old men at home in Mayo, praying in the church, saying prayers they'd made up themselves who'd forgotten how loud their voice was and you could hear them all over the church. Oh, my Jesus. Oh, my God. Oh, my Lord. Sighing and groaning and praying and swaying while they were praying, some of them nodding their heads in timeless ancient gestures without knowing it, probably. They were mystics. I've heard other priests say the same thing. St. John Vianney, the, the Cure d'Ar, didn't he come across a, a, a saint and a mystic in his own church? He was a, a poor peasant farmer. 
It's a famous story told about him. He'd noticed him that he was all the time just staring in front of him and he never seemed to say any prayers. And he came down to him. And he said, why don't you say anything? You don't seem to be praying. Because in those days, people, their lips moved when they were praying. And maybe still to an extent. And the old man answered to me, said, I just look at him and he looks back at me. And the story goes, John Vianney backed off because he was in the presence of a spiritual master. Unknown and anonymous. Will you go in and just be real with him? Go in and just be yourself. You're the only thing he wants in there, not your old masks. Not your beautiful suit or your up-to-the-minute jeans or your gorgeous new outfit. Not your beautiful new car. Not your qualifications, your medals, your trophies. All of these things are good things in themselves. I'm not knocking them. I'm not knocking excellence and achievement. But I'm telling you, you don't need them in front of him and they're no good to you. You go in in front of him as yourself and you'll bawl your eyes out. I don't care how tough you are. You'll cry like a baby the day you realise that that's enough. That all he wants is you to be there. You'll cry like a child, but it can take years for somebody to realise that simple truth. As far as God is concerned, they're enough. And that's with all your faults. Well, I always maintain it's very hard for a man to conceal anything with a woman in his life. I say that as a celibate, but as somebody who regards the, the female talents with the greatest cautious admiration. Women know things. Women are highly observant. I think men go through 40 years of marriage thinking they've hidden things from their wives. And she's read them like a book. You know, she's just too wise to... She leaves them with the, the thought. A bit like God, maybe. Just, just, just go into him. It's enough. And go in with that male piety if you're a man. I'm not doing this to discriminate against women. I just feel that there's being more done for, for women at the moment than there is for men. And there's a crisis of of masculine piety. That's all I'm saying. And I'm not saying it because I'm such a bloody he-man. I'm a scaredy cat like anyone else. But I really do believe that there is a crisis of masculine piety. I remember those old men and they prayed like men with their broken hands and seamed faces, weather-beaten faces, men who had worked out in the elements all their lives. Praying the rosary, saying their own prayers, making the stations of the cross. They would only receive communion maybe two or three times a year. And that's after having the strictest preparation. Confessions and then fasting from midnight. They'd keep the old fast. Where was the last time I saw a prayer like that? Do you want me to tell you? The last time I saw a prayer like that was in 1991. I was ordained a deacon in Rome. And two days afterwards, my class of four, there were just four of us in the Irish College of Ordained Deacons in Sant'Ignazio, beautiful Jesuit church. We were invited over through the good offices of an Irish bishop. We were invited over to join the Holy Father, Pope St. John Paul II, for his own private mass in his apartment, about two mornings later, with our parents. It was an incredible moment. We'd get up around five o'clock in the morning and get taxis over to the bronze door in the Vatican. And I saw John Paul II in his private chapel, in a tiny chapel, praying like the old men in Killeen Church, in the 1960s and early 70s. That generation probably died out in the 70s. He was there throwing himself. He was an athlete. He was a big brute of a man. I mean, physically. Big shoulders like a blacksmith on him. 
and he was throwing himself around the chair. Hallelujah. And he was groaning and moaning, you know, sort of. And he was praying with all of his heart and he had bits scribbled on bits of paper, probably people who had asked him to pray for him. What I was struck by was the physicality of his prayer. I'm saying to you that your prayer needs to be real. And I'm saying if there are men out there, pray like a man. Because that's what you are. Stop going into the church and trying to pray like a woman. A woman prays like a woman. A woman is elegant. A woman is... I don't know unless she's been, you know, lifting weights for East Germany lately. Like, a woman is elegant. Women are physically a bit more elegant than men, you know. We're, we look like sort of tractors. Well, a woman is a bit more petite. Don't be too polite about it. Go in there like a man. I'm not saying go in there and, and kick the chair and curse. And, but I mean, go in there and throw yourself into that seat and dog into it. You know, just dog into it and get yourself a decent rosary beads. I tell you, a lot of men won't say the rosary because it's all women's rosary beads and they're ashamed to be seen with them. It's like carrying a handbag. I can see why a woman might like a very elegant mother of pearl rosary beads. It's beautiful stuff. You know, Catholicism has generated its own jewellery and I think Islam the same. You'd see Muslim men, wouldn't you, with those with the beads? But I mean, again, when I was a kid, a man's rosary was generally black or brown and it was built like a bicycle chain. Because men break things. Men like breaking things. I taught in a boys' school. Boys just loved breaking things. Get yourself a decent rosary beads if you're a man out there. A good bicycle chain of an affair. You know, that you could use for self-defence if you were stuck. Or to lasso a bullock. And go in there and pray like a man. Horse into it. Give it stick. Keep it real. Don't be going in pretending to be something else. Let your wife be a woman. You can accuse me if you want of sexism and of stereotyping and all the rest of it. I'm not inventing this stuff. You might disagree with me on the fine print, but I'm not inventing this stuff. Men and women have a different take on things. We just do things in a different way often. It's great if we can just respect that and be at peace with it and enjoy each other and enjoy ourselves. And God enjoys you and he loves you completely. And if you go in there trying to be all sort of polite and something you're not normally not, he'll smile fondly, but it's really better if you can just be yourself. That's the strongest advice I can give here. Have a male piety. Have a female piety. Have a piety that's you. Here's another thing I'm going to say to you. Don't make this too fancy. Keep the ball in the air. Keep the game going. You fall asleep, wake up. Keep going. You get distracted, come back. Keep going. You lose your place in the rosary. Stop trying to be a prissy boots about it. Keep going. I remember when I was a young teacher. I, I knew nothing about rugby, but I had to supervise a rugby match and I had a crowd of small boys. I kind of mastered to some extent and, and there was a very leaden game going on and a very experienced senior teacher came up to me and he said look he said I know you're doing your best and it's not your game and all the rest of it but he said you need to have a bit more confidence and start breaking the rules because he said if they don't enjoy it they'll give up they're only little kids so he said they have to enjoy it and then we can work on skills but they have to look forward to it so he said you need to put a bit of vim into this game 
So they were playing very woodenly by the rules. And he runs out into the middle of the pitch, screaming and roaring and dragging his hands off the ground like a baboon. And he, he, he's a very dignified man. And he runs screaming and roaring into the middle of the kids who were stunned and they didn't know what to make of it. And he grabbed the ball and ran off screaming with it. And there was a second of silence. And then suddenly there was a general roar and a whole crowd of small boys blissfully covered in muck ran after him. Beforehand we had, I don't know, a dead ritual and now we had a game. If you just keep saying, oh, this has to be perfect and I have to keep to the rules. This isn't the liturgy. The liturgy is another kind of prayer again. This is your personal prayer. Will you calm down? This is your time with God. So just keep moving, keep it going for goodness sake. Break a few of the rules. Have I said five Hail Marys or have I, have I only said ten because you have no rosary beads and you were counting on your fingers, oh Jupiter, which hand was I on and, and this kind of thing. Oh look, will you just keep going? Forgot, what do you think? God, God's going to send you to hell because you missed five Aves. Will you just keep going? We're Catholics for goodness sake. Be at home in your faith. Go on, just fight on, press on, dog in, give it a lash, take a shot at it. Stay in the fight. Fight to the end. Keep it up. Fight to the end. That's a great ability in life as well as in prayer. Slug it out. You don't have to be pretty. You don't have to be dignified. You could be covered in spiritual mud. Stay in the game. That's all that matters. You just stay in it. Thirdly, if you can't pray, look, change tactics on the spot. So if you had a whole big ambitious programme for your prayer that evening, it's not working out, chuck it out. Throw it overboard forget about it. Now, I hesitate to use the word because the Queen's English has been destroyed, but there used to be such a thing as the pious ejaculations. Short, quick, snappy prayers. Go back to them. People say it, well, not really as a course, but they say it if they get a shock. Jesus, Mary and Joseph. But that's actually a prayer. Just say that. What's wrong with that? Jesus, Mary and Joseph, I give you my heart and my soul. Do you remember that prayer? Just say bits of it. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or just say, Jesus, 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 and you're not cursing. You're saying, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Or just call on the name of Mary and just keep saying Mary. Or just say the first few words, Holy Mary, Mother of God. Use favourite bits of prayers. My Lord and my God. That's a great prayer. That's a brilliant prayer. Or take a line from the Psalms, deep calling on deep. Like the deer that yearns, my soul is thirsting. You just you make this your own. We get to the Mass, we're all there together. It's a different form of prayer. It's ritual prayer, right? It's the liturgy. And it's important that we understand the difference. But I mean, this is your own personal prayer. And I'm telling you, keep it going. And repetition. Don't despise repetition. People will say, oh, it makes me feel brainless. It makes me feel, makes me feel stupid, like a strange person, like a, a cult member or something. You just keep repeating the same thing over and over again. Do you ever notice the way when you lift up a small child, put him back, lift him up, put him back down, and he, he shouts with laughter and delight, and he keeps saying again, 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 again. That's because children understand that one of the delights of playing is repetition. Repetition is, it's like learning things off by heart. We came to despise it, but that's rubbish. It's good for us, it's good for our memory, it's good for our minds and the exercise of in, our intelligence. Uh, repetition in the same way. Remember the prayer in the book of Revelation. Remember the prayers of all the angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, in the presence of the beatific vision. Aios, Aios, Aios in the Greek. Holy, 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 
holy, holy, holy. Sanctus in Latin. Sanctus, sanctus, sanctus. Just keep saying that. And you're praying the prayer of, of the seraphim, the cherubim. What's wrong with that? Here's another thing. Humanly, if we keep knocking at the door and nobody ever seems to come out, that's very dispiriting, very tedious, very boring. Listen to me. Waiting for God is an honourable occupation. An awful lot of our disenchantment with prayer and faith comes from our sense that this should be happening differently. And that creates a huge stress. Why doesn't he come out? Why doesn't he answer? And then when he answers, we're not listening. Well, he doesn't come out because you went down to the pub because you got bored and you weren't there when he came out. A part of the genius of the spiritual is repetition and waiting. It is an honourable activity to be on bended knee in the presence of your Lord. It does not diminish you. It honours you. It shows your character, your faith, your passion, your devotion. There is no shame in kneeling before God. No shame in waiting for God. Beckett had that famous play, Waiting for Godot, which is, you know, almost certainly an allusion to this huge problem. This huge, how would you put it, existential problem of waiting for God of waiting for meaning, of waiting for something to happen, of waiting for him to come, to keep the appointment, because so much of life is waiting. What is wrong with waiting? Do you know, I heard a fantastic story once of somebody about prayer. We both had an interest in military history, and he said he had read of one French bluff army general, and he wasn't much good at prayer. And do you know what he used to do in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament? He used to go in there when nobody else was there in full uniform and he would snap up to attention and salute and he would stand at the salute for an hour without moving like a guard in the presence of his king which he was. I thought it was a magnificent story. I thought it was a magnificent story. There's a, there's a soldier and, and he said, well, how, how can I pray? And his ancient profession had already taught him how to behave in the presence of of a superior at attention and salute. He went, went into the Blessed Sacrament and he did the same thing. Did what he'd been trained to do. Another great story, I think it's from Jose Maria Escriva, St. Jose Maria, but I'm open to correction on that, okay? I'm not sure. I think it is. I think he tells the story there somewhere. It's not his own story, but it's the story that he likes. And it's about the clown who joins the monastery. Have you heard this? Oh, he finds it awfully heavy going. He can't stand it altogether. He leaves the circus and he joins the monastery. And he finds the monastery terribly difficult and it's really not going well for him. And then the abbot hears a noise one night and he gets up and he goes down to the cloister in the middle of the night. And there in the middle of the night, in the light of the lamp burning in front of the statue of Our Lady, he sees this lay brother, as they were then, this clown. And there he is in his habit and his cowl in front of the statue of Our Lady, juggling which was his act in the circus. And the abbot says, what do you think you're doing? And where do you think you are? The lay brother drops the balls. He gets such a shock and he says, I'm sorry, Father Abbot, he said, but it's going so badly for me. He said, it's, it's the only thing I'm any good at and I thought she might enjoy it. The story goes, the abbot went back up to bed because he knew enough to know not to cross that. That was holy simplicity. That was the simplicity that burns. That was sanctity. That was spiritual genius. So, 
Here we pull this together on the feast of, of our, our great Pope, our great saint, Pius X. Uh, a sound man, a tough Pope, no messing, a man from very poor background who rose from modest means to lead the church um, and was a magnificent leader of the church in every sense. A wonderful man, Giuseppe Sarto. And we say with him that you can't beat the Psalms, you can't beat the poetry that our Lord himself has given us, the great Psalms. You can't, you, you can't beat what St. Athanasius himself called the mirror of the soul, the Psalms. But when you can't manage a psalm, manage a line of a psalm. When you can't manage a line of a psalm, manage a bit of a prayer. When you can't manage a bit of a prayer, manage a word of a prayer. When you can't manage that, fall asleep in the church, that'll do. When you made the effort to go to the church, that's prayer. And here, I'm saying this especially to the men, because and that's not an insult to the women, it's the opposite. Because women, I think, are brilliant at religion. Women understand religion. Even women who don't believe have a better understanding of religion than men who do. That's my secret theory. Okay? I really do believe that. I've seen it. I've seen it again and again. But I'm saying it especially to the men, also to the women. If you can't pray, go into the church. Men are very physical. Go into the church and genuflect and go back out. Just go into the church, genuflect and go back out. That'll do. Bless yourself with holy water. Stick your head in the font. Use holy water, as Pascal told his friends. When you're having trouble with faith, lash on the holy water. Use holy water. Say the prayers. You keep knocking at the door. God, he, he'll come out to you. He knows you're there. He's only messing with you. He does stuff like that. It's you who needs to keep knocking. He's there. Don't worry about it. He's messing with you. Like the deer that yearns for running streams. You need him. You're gagging, with a, you're gagging for a drink. You'd murder a pint. You're mad for, for a drink of the, the living water that is God's love, that is God himself. When you're there at your prayer, anything goes. And he's perfectly happy because you're here. And it's you he wants. St. Brendan, pray for us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.